Good evening. You are listening to Big Screen and Brews with Jared and Jared. I'm Jared Buck. And I'm Jared Newmaster. Uh, this week, in our bi-weekly podcast, we will be covering the films of Sofia Coppola. Um, we'll be covering Virgin Suicides from 1999, Lost in Translation from 2003, uh, Somewhere from 2010. I just skipped Marie Antoinette Net, which I believe was yeah, 2006, six. sorry. And then also the Bling Ring from 2013. Uh, that song, if you want to introduce what we just played. Oh, that was um, uh, that was High School Lover by Air, which is featured on the soundtrack for Virgin Suicides. Yeah, and we're actually going to start with Virgin Suicides. Uh, first things first, one of the main critiques we're still kind of getting is like, aren't, aren't you kind of a beer show as well? And uh, when are you going to start reviewing the beer? So I think we, we're going to actually talk about the beer a little bit because we've been sipping on it uh, this week. We've kind of done all the local breweries besides Enzel uh, Brewhouse. Enzel yes. Brewhouse. We haven't got to them yet, which we will. We're very sorry if they're actually listening. Which, you know, they probably aren't. But I, I got to act yeah. like I'm. I'm actually sorry about that. But we're uh, we're drinking Upland Weed Ale, which is brewed in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, and it's a pretty good beer. It's a Belgian wheat beer. Yeah. Kind of sweet. It, it's almost like a uh, like a summer shandy. Lining Kugels style taste no, it's nice yeah. and su- nice and sweet a little bit refreshing yeah it's, it's you know it's it's a little heavy compared to a lighter beer but it's still it's kind of like a, a lemon zest orange zest you know maybe a coriander i don't really i don't know what they threw in here but that's kind of what it tastes like it's definitely refreshing we've had kind of a heat wave here the last couple of days so i didn't want to go with like a very dark the, the heavy IPAs heavy IPA and, and beer things again. like that that we've and, done yeah, yeah i'm working on a golf course right now so that stuff doesn't sound too delicious. Anyways, Virgin Suicide. Do you want to start with what you got, and I'll just kind of follow you. Um, yeah, I think I think the first thing I want to touch on is, is that um, having revisited this movie, I mean, I'd seen it several times. I even loaned you my copy of the DVD that yeah, I've had for and probably I'd never, like I had never seen this film, so I was like, probably for like a decade. Um, but uh, I, I really love the starting narration. Um, with the with the boys of the neighborhood, and you get um, it's Giovanni Ribisi as the narrator. Oh, really? Yeah, that was him. The minute the minute I heard it, I I I don't remember the first like probably five times I saw it. Does ever, he ever does he ever that. actually show up in the film? I don't remember. No. Okay, I didn't think so because I, I I think he. If I had to guess, because they don't point out exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. Um. But it has to be one of the one of the boys, one of the boys that we'll talk about here in a second. I, th- I think it might. I think it might be uh, the boy being played by Jonathan Tucker, possibly, because in the later sequences, it's very clear that he's observing and that he's he didn't take one of the girls to the dance, but they went and like he's observing them in the dance and their dates. Gotcha. And he's the one that doesn't appear again. So. So yeah, that's that's cool. That's just I theory, that's just a theory, unless I'm. No, that's, that's, and maybe, I mean, we'd probably have to talk to Sophia Coppola herself to figure out if that was what she was trying to say. Or, you know, it might be somewhere in a source if we dug hard enough, but that sounds yeah. sounds legit to me. Uh, based on the book by Jeffrey Eugenitis, I believe, and then she, you know, writes the screenplay, I believe, on this one. She basically, Sophia writes basically everything she directs. As far, yeah. as far as unless I miss one that she didn't no yeah. she she rides everything she directs and then you were kind of talking about she had a little bit of trouble getting funds to actually produce this one 
you want to kind of start there because yeah. this is her first film. But. Yeah, there, there's there's stories I've heard about her not being. Her goal was to try to get it self financed without, you know, asking her father, and uh, which which I could I could see why you'd want to want yeah, to do you, that if you you're know, her. You, you want to be proud of doing something on your own, yeah. but in the end, she had to turn to him for some money I guess and yeah. then eventually the studio bought it and the rest is history her career is kind of taken off from there but uh, good performances here good young performances yeah. I think this is uh, if I'm not mistaken this is Josh Hartnett's like fourth feature film something along those lines like he's very young yeah like you know very boyish well, playing, well, playing well, the part of Trip Fontaine Every every woman's dream in like 1974 or whenever this exactly. actually takes place. Exactly takes his takes his hit of the wacky weed as often as uh, <laughs> as as often as most diabetics take their insulin. Yeah, which is a direct was, yeah, line. That was a funny line. Uh, but kind of the synopsis of the film: uh, the Lisbons are these kind of very sheltered group of girls. There's five girls, and it kind of starts off. Cecilia, the youngest, slits her wrist. And that's where the film starts off, um, and then they kind of try to like expose her and the other girls to more boys, and it's kind of some weird social commentary on Christian household sheltering going on here. I think uh, Kathleen is it Kathleen Turner? Yeah, it's Kathleen Turner yeah. and James Woods play there. Yeah, Kathleen Turner. She reminds me like whether you like it or not. We've, we've all had those kids in the neighborhood that just couldn't do certain things or you knew in high school it's like sorry my mom won't let me go see that movie or won't let me go to that dance or you know just like, it felt very familiar to kind of like those kids in my childhood not necessarily making fun of that but this movie kind of takes a dark stab at like what could lead to just hawking your kids to the extent of uh, making them burn burn your Kiss albums and Aerosmith albums in the fireplace yeah, sort of thing yeah, this this movie has a lot of very memorable scenes, um, and and the characters are really imagined. Like, I think I think you get, you know, two thirds of the movie, the dialogue basically bounces off of um, Rabisi's narration, mm-hmm. and I mean it really drives the. I think it I think it builds to the you know here is. Um, James Wood, I think, does a good job as the as the father, being the kind of nerdy. He's supposed to be a math teacher. And yeah, and he definitely does. It. James Wood always James Woods always does a great job. Yeah. Like, he, like anytime I see him in a film, he's he's really an underrated actor. I mean, I guess he's not really someone that people can relate to because he's always kind of this weird character. He's like I don't, I don't know if any of you have seen Videodrome or. <laughs> You know, Once Upon a Time in America, which I hope we will visit sometime. But the guy, the guy is a very talented actor. Um, he's also in Oliver Stone's Nixon, which is a really good film as well. Uh, but um, yeah, another thing, I, it's one of the, it's one of those funny things where it's like I, I don't know if this family was trying for boys, and that's why they have five girls. That's always kind of like I've actually seen families like that where they have like nothing but boys, but it's like seven of them, and you know. They were trying to have that one girl. Well, yeah, we're like we're in, we can stop. We're in the age of contraception, so it's not like it was like a problem. I mean, you know, maybe like socially they are Catholic, so that might be that might be, might be another thing. But still, like, you know, it's the '70s. I don't want to get too caught up in that. But pretty, 
pretty good period music here. Uh, this the film also has a pretty young performance by Kirsten Dunst. I don't know how old she is. Definitely post Jumanji, pre Spider Man one, yeah. or just Spider Man. But you have to specify because there's the second series now. Uh, she plays the character Lux, who ends up having a kind of a fling with Hartnett's character, and uh, things fall apart, and she stays out after curfew, and that leads to uh, basically all the girls being grounded. I mean, we're kind of yeah. jumping ahead, but it's just kind of giving you little snippets of what happens. But uh, before before all that happens, the youngest Cecilia does end up committing suicide, which yeah. Uh, basically, basically, um, they throw this party because um, the uh, psych- her psychiatrist, who is Cameo, play- Danny, Cam- Danny DeVito, DeVito. Yeah. Um, you know, tells tells them that they need to not be the sheltered homeschool children that they are, and so they're like, okay, we'll try this. So they have a they throw a party, and it's nice, and you, you know, just kids having fun and everybody being awkward because they're all teenagers from various ages because it's all the neighbor kids basically and uh cecilia asks to go upstairs and then the next time you see her you see uh james woods trying to lift her body off of this iron pointed iron pointed fence fence yeah out in the front yard she jumped out the uh, second story window and landed and impaled herself on their fence i i also think it's great symbolism because the there's something in the area they they talk about like the water treatment plant and some other stuff and there's for some reason they're going through and they're chopping down almost every tree in the uh, front yards yeah, of all these I, they kind of mentioned like there's a there's a disease that came over from europe with the bugs i think yeah. that i don't know if it's emerald ash borer it could be me you know but cecilia actually puts her handprint on in, the, one of in one of the trees that's in their front yard and that's one that gets infected so they're kind of yeah. after she passes away they're kind of protecting that tree that kind of becomes but you but you see the the first tree they take down they take down right after her uh right after her death Mm -hmm. and then you also have the symbolism of them literally hooking a truck to the fence and then ripping it out of the ground yeah but uh another another funny scene from that party was when uh woods's character who's i forget his first name they're the lisbons i forget his first name i don't know if it's carl or something like that but he's he's talking to all the boys at the party because you know he doesn't have a son, and he's so excited to show them all these like World War II models that he's been working on. I think he I think he's just looking for like a little bit of like a, a masculine interaction at that point. And I was like, cool, Mr. Lisbon, and they just like run away <laughs> run away from him. And I thought that was really funny. Um, but uh, I, I don't know where we're gonna go with this. This this film has pretty good like '70s era music. I don't know if any of you are fans of Hart, but the moment we see uh, Hartnett's character, and like whether you like it or not, Josh Hartnett's definitely like one of the bigger heartthrobs from the late 90s, early 2000s. It plays uh, Magic Man when he's just like <laughs> walking around the school and like every girl is just like fawning over him. It's really funny to watch. Like I, I think he'd even, I think there's even a shot where it implies that one of the teachers, like he's late for class, but she doesn't care because he's good looking. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like, That's just trip, you know. Yeah. Oh, wink, wink in the wink in the gun. Yeah, he, he, he just came back from his car for the second hit of marijuana of the day. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this is a two out of five Coppola films that feature Kirsten Dunst as the main character. Uh, we'll talk about the other appearance she makes here in a little bit, but you know other other 
groups it features has stuff from ELO, Sticks, you know, Bee Gees, and like I don't know what some of that plays when they're at like the school dance trip and Lux end up being homecoming king, king and queen. The yeah, there's um, you see you see uh, Dunst lose her virginity and have her heart broken for the first time, and her become this kind of very. All, all these girls are kind of these angelic figures because of how they're um, being looked at from the narrator, narrator and his friend's point of view. Um, and then you kind of see her fall, and then you never get a real good glimpse at how everyone else is taking. I mean, you can tell that the girls are all having issues with Cecilia's death and because um, there's a big big thing where they rope themselves to the one of the to the tree that has her handprint in it when the city comes to t- cut it down but and, and you know these girls are some of them some are in their late teens this is definitely kind of a commentary about Coppola I mean we also already t- kind of talked about the church side of things but just not giving your daughter you know sexual identity after a certain point or just letting her go out and you know on a date with a boy when she's 16 is just it's a little too much so i i I think i think sometimes i think it's i mean everybody has different opinions on you know those kind of things but um i think sometimes when you restrain you really do get a solid rebellion from you know i think i think all these girls are overly sexualized yeah and and you know it's raging hormones and they've had had to basically suppress them because they haven't been able to have a normal i mean i'm not going to drop names but i've seen it yeah like both ways like guys i've known girls i've known but uh solid film we don't need to Can, can we talk about the party at the end oh yeah go for it um this movie ends with kind of like um like i said everything's Narrated real heavily, especially at the end, um, you don't really get very much dialogue at all. But um, they talk about uh, a cotillion and them throwing this party, and that the since since it's been such a drab year and the water treatment plants making the whole place smell bad and and all this that they're gonna have a uh, the party the the party theme was called it asphyxiation and they just oh yeah I forgot about fill that the, yeah which which yeah, it's I obvious obviously. <laughs> this movie's about it's a little about, it's a little insensitive considering what just happened in the town. Yeah, with, yeah, and the so. guy and the guy in the pool where he falls into the pool and he's like he's like I've had enough cruel world and he falls into the pool yeah. he's, he's hammer drunk, and then he crawls out and he goes he goes you don't understand I'm a teenager, and I I think that's a a big social commentary to how much uh, you know people don't. You know, have trouble admitting that their their kids have feelings, and you know, and how how important it is like for their emotional state to, you know, be able to talk about those things. Yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of warming up to the fact of there are people out there who have suicidal tendencies as well, and people need to be looking for that, and people need to be helping those people. You know, I, I've seen that a lot on social media recently. Like, hey. If, you need some something or someone to talk to. Come to me. A lot of people are trying to prevent this thing from happening. Um, this is kind of this movie is kind of a, a black, kind of a black comedy. It's like the the darker version of Now and Then. Almost. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie yeah, or like Stand by Me for Guys. It's yeah. like the coming of age movie. Uh, 
Actually, it's kind of if you took both those movies and put them together and then turned it into this black comedy. Yeah, it's it's because you have those characters on both sides that are very. I mean, they don't go into specifics. Um, you were talking talking about young Josh Howard, and so before we leave this, I would like to point out that this is uh, Hayden Christensen's first movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he has one line of dialogue in the entire thing. He's I one. Of, he's one of the dates. Okay, I I didn't even notice it. Yeah, was he's him. there with. Uh, the second oldest yeah, one. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. But uh, another funny thing is when they're going to the, the dance is the mom basically makes them wear, like, dresses that are, like, burlap sacks, basically. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Just more... And it's sewn, aren't they sewn together out of sheets? Yes. I, I, yeah, I think they, like, went to yeah. like, either, like, a fabric store, and she just, like, made them sacks to wear over their... <laughs> it was... It's like, these aren't, these aren't dresses. <laughs> they're yeah. just covered up completely. But, uh... No, definitely a solid film. I mean, do you have anything else you really want to touch on on this? It's definitely a good starting point for Coppola's career. I mean, it's yeah. it's. I, I kind of want to say this. This is almost the beginning of her like Lonely Girl trilogy, if that makes any sense. Like, just like the first three films are definitely like, a girls looking for identity and not quite understood. What you know, the circumstances aren't the same, but like that's kind of a theme that runs into Lost in Translation if you want to go from there. Yeah, I think I think it does. So her next film, which is probably her most well-known film, I mean, I don't, well, how about more highly, most highly acclaimed? Because, you know, this film, Lost in Translation from 2003, nominated for four Oscars. Yeah. yeah. Wins an Oscar. This is Coppola's first Oscar. She wins for writing. Um, commercial success, uh, I think the budget was only $4 million dollars. Makes one hundred nineteen point seven million dollars. Yeah. Like the studio is sitting there going, uh, "Yeah, that's good, good job." But uh, it's um, I don't know. This this film has has a lot of a lot of heart. It also has like kind of takes you to some darker places that a lot of people have probably been before. I don't know if you want to like kind of jump from there. Dark. Um, I mean, it it is dark. It is dark in certain ways. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's people that, I mean, I, I think it really is two people who are legitimately lost and not just in their setting, which is the easy, you know, way of looking at it, but they're lost in their lives. Um, you see, you see, I mean, uh, Scarlett Johansson's character, um, Charlotte. Yeah. yeah Charlotte. It's, easy, it's easy to remember because it, it rhymes. Yeah. Like Scarlet is playing Charlotte. Yeah, Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte is uh, is young and is in this you know newer marriage and hasn't hasn't taken a career yet. You know she is really trying to figure herself out in a lot of ways. You know it's like oh well, um, they talk about her going to Yale and make jokes yeah. about it, and she's you know very. They keep calling her. She keeps saying people keep calling me snobby and stuff, but she's she's just. She's an intellectual. Yeah. Like, she is, she's a person that's educated. She knows what she's talking about, so it's hard for her to sit there and bite her tongue. Um, kind of give you a little brief synopsis. Basically, he, he kind of described Charlotte's synopsis, but Bill Murray's character, and Bill, Bill Murray was actually nominated for Best Actor. This was his best shot at getting that, probably. But uh, he ended up losing to Sean Penn for Mystic River. And uh, which that's a great performance as well. But 
Bill Murray plays the character Bob Harris, who's supposed to be this kind of washed-up action star, and I think he absolutely nails it. And the funny, the, the first, okay, the uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about. We kind of talked about how like Lost in Translation is more than just like the translation of because they're in Japan. They're both meeting in Tokyo, but the funny, the, probably the, one of the funnier scenes is when. Uh, Bob or Bill, Bill Murray's character, is uh, filming the commercial he's over there for, and this Japanese director is just screaming at him in Japanese. And did you have the? Were the subtitles there? No. Okay, there weren't, and I didn't think so. I'm like, either I didn't, you know, I don't know if I didn't realize that those were there or not when I was watching this, or I wasn't paying close enough well, attention. But I found the translation for what he's saying, and okay. I kind of like, I'll just kind of. So basically, like, the Japanese director is like, yeah, like, I want you to sit there with a bottle of Centauri whiskey on top of the table, and uh, you want to slowly look at the camera tenderly as if you are meeting an old friend, and as if you were a bogey in Casablanca, and say, here's looking at you, kid, Centauri time. You know what I'm saying? And then the translator goes, he wants you to look in camera, okay? <laughs> and, and Bill Murray's just like, is that really all he said? <laughs> it's, it's like, it sounded to me like he said a lot more. It yeah. like he said a lot more. It's, so a, hell, like, it's a hell of a bit. It, it, so it I really mean, like... Is. Like, yeah, like yes, he is technically lost in translation, but there's a lot more than that. Like you said, you know, they're lost in their relationships. Bill Murray's kind of in a struggling marriage. Scarlett Johansson's character Charlotte's in a struggling married marriage with Giovanni Robisi, who's yeah. playing this photographer who's in Tokyo doing photo shoots. Um, but uh, they they both just kind of bump into each other at a bar one night. She buys him a drink, and I don't know. It's I, apparently the, they actually meet in the elevator. Oh well, that's because it's supposed yeah. to be that that she was so stuck up that she didn't really notice him, but okay. he because there's a whole yeah, part about right. it later. But yeah, he talks about that later, doesn't he? But um, I don't know if Coppola like apparently Coppola kind of wrote this autobiographically about her first marriage with Spike Jones, kind of feeling a disconnect with him. So and like. After 2003, they're divorced. So I don't, I don't know if if that was pre, you know, what the paperwork was being filed when this movie is being edited, or you know what. I don't have the time frame on that, but she's definitely looking within. Kind of, kind of her love letter to Tokyo. Apparently, she had yep. kind of been there a few times. You know, kind of felt lost herself. You know, all these distractions. It's a very colorful place. Did you? Random question though: Did you also notice the li the lines when they're talking to Murray about his films early on, like the guys in the bar? For some reason, I was getting this feeling that they were talking they were talking about it like maybe he was like maybe his acting credit was something like um, like Gene Hackman in The French Connection. Like that's that's who this guy is to okay. the people. Like, oh, we love you. You're Bob Harris. Oh, you know, like he's like like maybe that's who he's supposed to be. Kind of like like he's supposed to be like that's the level movie star he's supposed to be it's like gene hackman where it's like you say gene hackman everybody knows exactly who that is but for the people that are a little older they're like oh my gosh we love you we see your movies all the time yeah see, he's you know he's definitely supposed to be washed up though there's definitely a funny scene where he's watching himself on japanese television yeah. and i don't know if it's the same film but then just has like this overdub of this like car crash <laughs> and just turns off the tv or yeah. i don't know it, that was, I don't know, I, I let, this movie, it's, it's a definitely kind of a, 
it's definitely a drama, but it, there's definitely a lot of funny parts. Which actually, I think that scene, I think that clip that it is showing is well, that's what first he sees. Um, him, he sees himself as Bill Murray on SNL. It's a bit from with the chimp from like seventy. I might have been seventy-eight. Because yeah. he's second season. He's once he's yeah. once chases off. But uh, and then you have uh, and then like I said, he switches. Then he switches oh, yeah. the channel. It's not the same show, but it's it's. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it actually is the car she seen from French Connection. I think that's maybe where I'm connecting the Okay, two. yeah, maybe. I, but uh, apparently Coppola wrote this with Murray in mind, like from the start writing this for Bill Murray. I mean, do you have anything on that? You want to talk about that a little bit? Apparently she's like gunning him down, trying to get him on board. He's not responding, and apparently she kind of turned to Wes Anderson, who had worked with him before, and then... Apparently he kind of got the deal get, deal done, and apparently he didn't sign a contract either, which kind of scared her initially until he just showed up on set in, in Tokyo. <laughs> just thank God you're here because uh, we're ready. I guess yeah. that's kind of what happened. Well, I I have a feeling maybe he wasn't going to get paid very much money because like have you have you ever heard the money story from Rushmore? Ah uh, no, uh, they could only afford to pay him like. Twenty-three thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. And uh, then they get then they go to film the movie and they don't have enough money to film um, the Max's play, mm-hmm. like all that stuff that happens. They didn't have the budget for all the all the stuff for that. So Murray actually gave them not just what they paid him back, an additional forty thousand dollars to have that sequence <laughs> made. Like he lost like, he lost money. Yeah. Did he end up getting like? Compensation for that eventually, maybe like DVD I, sales. I have no idea. He probably didn't. He probably just went and played kickball with kids. <laughs> He's ex- yeah, and wandered off into the distance. He just he just really is that he just really is that eccentric. Although my my favorite scene in this movie, as far as comedically, is the uh, lip my stocking scene. <laughs> oh god! Oh gosh, forgot about that. I don't. I didn't write any notes about that. That was kind of awkward. Uh, the director of the uh, the Japanese commercial that he's over there for sends up a. Uh, a lady prostitute to be his, his wildest fantasies. Do you want? Yeah. Do you want? A, do you want a massage? And he says no. no. And she goes okay. And then she sits, hikes her leg onto his leg and goes, "Lip my stockings." He's like, "Lip, lip your stocking." He oh, rip them. Oh, rip. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, she just keeps yelling, "No, no!" And <laughs> yeah, keeps like, gra- yeah, she like throws herself on the ground. Yeah, keeps keeps grabbing him, and he like breaks a lamp and all kinds yeah, of stuff. Like, like it's he's like trying to walk away, and she's like hanging onto his leg. Like, Mister, have this come back. It's uh, it's definitely awkward, and it's one of, it's one of those things where it's like if that's on TV and I'm watching it, if I feel awkward at all. Back in the day, I'd change the channel for like five seconds and then come back. I used to do that a lot if I saw anything that was like. Remotely taboo. If my mom might walk in the room, looking at me like, uh, like ready. Well, well, and I think that's I think that's part of it is is that I I think Coppola likes to kind of peek into the world like like put you right in the middle of where her characters are. Yeah. And so like this is supposed to be this very weird, awkward sexual thing, like sexual but not sexual thing because. He's not really interested in anything going on, so it still feels like halfway removed, even though it's happening. But it's a personal look into that feeling of how awkward this is. Yeah, and he, you know he, they're definitely like attracted to each other on a social level, 
but he's like 30 plus years her senior probably i don't know well was she like 17 when she filmed this or something like that she she was but she was playing see she's playing like a 23 year old well and and this part was this part was written for Kristen dunst and she couldn't do it because of spider-man okay well so this would have been another yeah Kristen dunst and and basically um i'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure if I'm thinking right, she saw uh, Coppola saw Ghost, Ghost World with Scarlett Johansson in it, and mm-hmm. decided that would that she would be kind of she had the chops to pull it off. Well, I I think it was like she had the the look of what she wanted the the those kind of things. But yeah, yeah, she was like 17 or 18 when she filmed this movie, so it was kind of awkward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, even the opening shot where it's like just her entire backside in pink underwear. It's yeah established. I mean, it's. I didn't know that what like when I was watching. Oh, it's Scarlett Johansson, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, she was only seventeen. That's kind of risque. I yeah. mean, you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you, unless you looked it up. So she definitely yeah. pulls it off. Like when you come back, my first note: Scarlett's butt. That's all. That's all it <laughs> says. That's all it says. Like, <laughs> like I was like, are we going to touch on this? Because I wanted to see what you were going to say first. Um, but uh, this is apparently Bill Murray's favorite film he's ever worked on. At least he said that in the DVD commentary. Yeah. Um, he must have enjoyed it. Apparently, like you know, the way this was kind of filmed too. Apparently, it was just kind of like camera in hand in some sections. Like they were just like roaming around Tokyo without permits at some points. Just yeah. you know, in a, whether it was a subway car, you know, a metro, whatever it is, just shooting whatever they can at dusk. And apparently, like some of the shooting had to be done at one a.m. in the hotel shots because they wouldn't give them. You know, daytime because just the hustle and bustle. You really can't shut down a hotel lobby like that. Well, it's so. kind of perfect, anyways, considering most of the shots are, you know, supposed to be like they're not sleeping and all this or that. Yeah, I mean, and they're also, what is it, like twelve hours removed, typically across the world. Yeah, probably jet lagged beyond belief, especially if they're coming back and forth from the states. Well, and I think that's how it's. I think that's how it starts is that they they both think that they can't sleep because of some kind of off off put from jet lag um but really i think the sleep not sleeping thing mirrors their how they feel in their you know actual relationships do you want to talk about post-romance at all like i know definitely a theme in this film i mean you've got we just talked about the prostitute scene kind of just cheap lust for sex and just multiple two failed marriages here you know, it's kind of like, a, is is love real? I don't know if Coppola was like, you know, she must have just been kind of down when she was kind of writing this, I think. not Just looking within herself if, if things with Spike Jones weren't working out, you know what I mean? So I don't know if she's like, is it even worth falling in love again if this doesn't work? You know, what what is the meaning of all that? But, you know, and then like there's the cheap scenes where they're out in the town in Tokyo, you have, you know, strippers, like, that's another scene that's once again, I would have to have the remote ready to change the channel. <laughs> but, but it's just Bill Murray staring at it, staring at a Japanese stripper for like a good thirty seconds, and Charlotte walks up and goes, "How long have you been here?" It's like, I don't even want to say. Where's, where's everybody else? Uh, they're 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 in a dance class, <laughs> and then and then they go to leave, and he gets real close to her and goes, "Thank you." Like bends down. But I, and then like even like this relationship between these two, even though they're so, I mean they're so split in age, they're thirty five plus years apart. Like I said, maybe he kind of cheapens it. He ends up having an affair with the lounge singer at one point, and she kind of walks in on that. And 
you know, it's just kind of a. I think the ending is is definitely it's heartwarming, romantic. Like I think I think it's supposed to say they actually felt something here when yeah. he's he's on the way out of town and he kind of bumps into her and lays one on her. It's it's a bit odd. I mean, we kind of talked about like Jimmy St- Jimmy Stewart being too old and. Uh, oh gosh, Cary Grant being too old in the, in the, the Hitchcock stuff—it's kind of like that. And like Bill Murray was never like this heartthrob, but he's definitely—he's definitely a charmer. It's hard to—it's hard to explain how Bill Murray is, is an attractive guy. I mean, a, I'm not like into guys, but B, <laughs> I mean, you don't like look at Bill Murray and go, "Yeah, that's a handsome man." <laughs> you know what I mean, but he's just—he's a character. I love I, Bill. Yeah, I think that's—I think that's what it is because that's what. It's not believable in Groundhog's Day that he would get Andy McDowell either. No, exactly. He's like, wait, it's the same problem. And that's, is that like 92? It's, it's way before, that's like 10 Maybe years. Maybe 94. Yeah, it's like 10 years before this, and he's still, he kind of has a bunch of uh, old pimple spots, scars on his face. Anyways, anything else on this one? Yeah, I would, I would say that I, I agree. I think it's got, like, to be honest with you, one of the most perfect endings to a movie ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other thing I noticed this time that I I don't think I'd ever noticed before is the very last scene, which is the uh, the the taxi uh, or the the taxi or his ride mm-hmm. um, going up the bypass. Mm-hmm. It stops right there, and she ends the image on real fil- film as a burnout shot. Oh and, wow! And, and so the sign that's there is literally burned away the image, and uh, so it wow. And so, but then the next thing immediately as it, after it blackens is her name in the same spot. That's awesome. I didn't notice that. Yeah. But uh, if you haven't seen Lost in Translation, check it out. And this is a film I watched back in probably two thousand four, two thousand five. You know, right around when it came out. But you know, I was like late middle school early high school I'm sitting there like what is this you know what I mean like I don't understand any oh, of this it's Bill Murray I like him he's in but Ghostbusters I mean, like, but I, like at the same time like I was trying to get into film and like I knew this yeah. was Bill Murray's chance at an Oscar I'd watched the Academy Awards but like I think I probably that same summer I borrowed uh, Blade Runner from a friend and watched it for the first time and I think I c- kind of felt the same way about this like yeah you're gonna love this film it's a great movie I'm like alright so I put it in watch Blade Runner and was just like I didn't understand anything in that movie <laughs> and then only like only after like the fifth or sixth time of watching Blade Runner am I like I think I'm kind kind of kind of understanding it <laughs> like a lot I'll recommend that movie to people and they'll come back and be like have, I, I hated that movie have you <laughs> it's terrible like, have, yeah. have, you, have you ever heard the uh, the Patton Oswalt joke where he's talking about how how nerdy he is and he's like I'm so nerdy that you expect to call my house and the answer machine message to be Rugert Hauer's monologue from the end of play. His is uh, it's just tears and rain. <laughs> his improvised monologue. Yeah, it's so good. No, but uh, definitely check out Lost in Translation. Like I said, I watched it the first time a long time ago. Did not enjoy it second time. Absolute treat. We're gonna go ahead and jump to 2006, which is. Her third film, and like I say, this is kind of like the third film in the Lonely Girl trilogy ish, which is Marie Antoinette, which I just actually watched this, so it's pretty fresh. But you want to go ahead and take whatever you want to start with? Um, yes. I'm, I have to be honest, this is probably the one I'm not, not the biggest fan of. I, I mean, I do. 
even revisiting it, I, I, I'd say I enjoyed it more the this time because I don't think I've I don't think I've ever revisited it till now. I watched it a long time ago, but I don't remember being like that was a you know fantastic film. I should buy that film. I think I rented it in high school from Premiere Video when that was still a thing in Evansville. <laughs> but uh, I I think I think I just assumed I'd love it because I had seen her other two films and I I really like I said I'd come out of Lost in Translation and really. Because I think the first time I saw Lost in Translation, I was like senior in high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. It was just kind of something. You were expecting more. Yeah. Yeah. And and the year before this, you got. Um, it's definitely a step towards consensus, if that makes any sense. Because, I mean, this. And, like, we'll kind of. I'll, I'll start off by saying like, when this was shot, or when this was screened at Cannes, apparently, after a couple screenings. Some French critics were booing a little bit yeah. in the audience, and you know other critics are like, "Yeah, something is kind of considered to be a little politically incorrect as far as how it's you know interpreting the way something happened in history or someone else's history in Europe." They, you know, you're allowed to boo. <laughs> you're allowed to boo. Like, you know, we do that at sporting events, so, but never, yeah, yeah, never have I been to a movie. And- it's kind of an infamous thing at Cannes, though. They they boo the stuff they don't like. Oh, okay. I mean it's it's well known. There's there's even been issues in the last couple of years where um, the press rooms, like they've always done it in the press rooms. They've done it in the theaters for probably a decade or more at this point. Um, and that um, like last year, somebody open channeled the mic to one of the theaters from a press room because they knew that the press would just destroy it mm-hmm. and they just started playing it during the credits of one of the movies like what they were saying and so it was yeah yeah apparently that was a big deal but uh yeah, um and, and like other critics were like this isn't like i haven't seen barry Lyndon. i kind of said that to you i'm like watching this makes me want to watch barry Lyndon after just kind of watching all the set pieces because it's well it's not really it's not a set piece yeah this film they had access to the Palace of Versailles, which yeah. is like unheard of, apparently. Like, yeah, go for it, you know. But it's like, I, you know, the name Coppola kind of has some some clout. I mean, her her dad made great films. She's of the same. Well, and and I think I, I the one thing I do know enough about with French cinema is that if if you're gonna support something, um, even though this is kind of satire, yeah, um, if you're gonna support something involving French culture and they don't feel like you're stepping on it, the the French will usually get behind helping you to do it. I mean, Woody Allen had a, a great uh, bit of help from the French government when he did uh, Midnight, Midnight in Paris. Yeah. So, I mean... Um, no. but, but, like Speaking of satire, I was going to say, like Barry Lyndon is apparently this great period piece that I'm probably going to be watching this coming week, and we'll talk about what we're actually going to be watching for the next show, but it's something on the side. Yeah. But... If you go into this film thinking this is more of a satire instead of being a historical right. movie or just a biography, I mean, it is, it is biographical. Right? Well, and that, that that was kind of what my what my issue was is that I think on my first viewing was I was like, oh, Coppola who makes beautiful movies that I love is doing a period piece, and the year before that I'd seen um, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, yeah, which to me was such a great period piece, like mm-hmm. it was just done so well. I I had never seen really anything done that that well as far as period at that time so i was like oh coppola will knock this out of the park and she does but what she's aiming for is not not what i was expecting 
You know what I mean? So no. I was like, I was like, I just there just wasn't an alignment between what I, I, I guess in my mind I thought I was going to see and what. But I mean, like I, I definitely like before you, he walked in when I was about halfway through it. Um, he walked in. <laughs> oh God, no! But uh, I, I, I definitely I didn't look at any notes on this film or like you know kind of look at anything while I was watching it initially. But the moment I kind of realized it was satire is when the king, who's played by Rip Thorn, was like, "Nothing happened." Like it was like super focusing on her and Louis not consummating the. The marriage, and then when she wakes up, apparently when everybody has to dress her the first time because she's the dauphine, and she just goes, "This is ridiculous," <laughs> and they just go, "This is Versailles." <laughs> At that point, it's like, "Oh, Wh- I, whoever whoever I, is the senior member of the family party will be the one to, to dress you," and it's it keeps changing. A new a new member walks in and takes the other one's place immediately. Yeah, it's just yeah. It's another funny cut. I think is. Uh, when, after the initial first dance during the wedding, is it might have been before. It, it just has this gigantic, ridiculous firework display for like a good minute, yeah. and then it has a big M and a big L right next to it, like with sparklers. All like I don't think that would have ever been the case. It's, it's it was almost something out of like Monty Python as far as how goofy it was. Yeah. Like the excessive. I don't know. Like I've what? never seen a fireworks display that are that many. And I think the first time I saw that, I interpreted it as, oh, if you get to use the the Garden of Versailles, which is freaking amazing, why not set off fireworks in it? Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying, like, like in my mind, I think that's where I was at first. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see your see your point. But um, uh, this oh, this feature is Jason Schwartzman. We didn't really he plays Louis the Sixteenth. Um, he's a Coppola. If you don't know that, he's Talia Shire's son, yeah. who is a Coppola. Her uh, maiden name. Maiden name. Sorry, her maiden name was Talia Coppola, uh, Francis's sister, right? I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, two Coppolas working together, actor and director. Uh, this another. This won another Oscar. This one for costume design. Um, definitely deserved it. Oh, yeah. As far as like, like I don't know. Like I was saying this to you. I was kind of like I don't know anything about like styles and you know. 1700s France but this is awesome like as far yeah. as what they were able to do just very ornate and weird I, I'm pretty pastels. sure that's I'm pretty sure that's that's what it was other than like when she dyes her hair pink and things like that I think that's I think that's kind of made up a bit but, but and like not only is it kind of a satire it's, it kind of takes a kind of a liberal modern twist on this story like kind of acts like these girls are going shopping at certain scenes, listening to like "Bow Wow Wow's I Want Candy." Like it's almost like a mall shopping spree scene where they're yeah. like going nuts. But and like kind of the Chuck Taylors, you were talking about that a little bit. It's like, you know, what is this? And I'm sure people saw that. Like, why? Like, how could you have that music and then like those shoes with this? It just doesn't match up. It's very like. Is it going to age well because of that? I I I actually think it I actually think it might be one of those movies where fifty years from now, if it if it, if somebody comes into a conversation with it, they'll talk about, it. especially the way her her career has been. Um, I mean, to a lot of people, Lost in Translation is a masterwork. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, 
I mean, it and Criterion recognized both it and uh, and Virgin Suicides. Uh, so I mean, I think it's one of those things where when people go back and look at this body of work, which hopefully we will get more of, um, might grow, you know, with with new audiences. And something. Uh, this is kind of off topic. There's kind of a, like the, probably the first hour of the film, whether one likes it or not, is about them not having any sex. Yeah. Schwartzman's character and Dunn's character, and you know they're trying to bridge the gap between Austria and France politically because of that. And they didn't really talk about it, but apparently, like I looked this up, I'm like what was wrong with him? was Louis the Sixteenth gay? You know, not that there's anything wrong with that. To quote Seinfeld, but apparently he had phimosis, which if you don't know what that is, look it up. So like. Sex was uncomfortable for him for reasons. Apparently, yeah. it doesn't talk about that at all. But there's kind of this like he really did. He really was into like making locks and like keys. Apparently, and like it's kind of funny that he's so into lock and key, but isn't into sexual intercourse at all. It's it's, like, it's, kind of, it's a direct representation yeah. maybe of his frustration with it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe, but. Uh, I don't have way too much on this film because I just watched it, so I didn't take any like extra notes. It was just kind of what I was uh, jotting down while I was watching it. Do you have, do you have anything else on this one? 